All right, so we are on week four of, you got to take some more out. Keep going, yeah. Thank you. Global Christian history. This week we'll be doing a history of Christianity in Russia. Christianity in Russia. So whenever you do um, some kind of historical overview of anything, is ve- like history is very nuanced. And so when we do broad overviews of history, we can only really hit highlights. So we're going to hit some of the major highlights of how the gospel, how Christianity spread in Russia. So you're going to get a lot of dates and names that I have a hard time pronouncing. Can you hear me? Dates. Hello, hello. Are you getting a signal? Is it bouncing on the computer? Okay, so then it's up here. Are you getting a signal, Christian? Are you getting a signal in the camera? All right, so I'm just going to have to speak loud, and you can record it, and hopefully we'll, we'll be good. All right. Um, <clears throat> The uh, you know what you can check, check and see if the fuse upstairs is. All right, so we're doing like I was saying. Um, history is uh, complex, and oftentimes we can only do broad overviews of these things. So that's what we're gonna do today. So again, I'm apologizing in advance. My voice is a little lost in. I can't say a lot of these names properly. So just bear with us. I'll do the best that I can to, to uh, go through this today. So the history of Christianity in Russia, the history of Christianity in Russia. So <clears throat> one commentator said that the best way, the best way to describe our Christian brothers and sisters in Russia is often suffering, often persecuted, yet persevering in hope. I'll do this. Is that better? Okay. Often persecuting, persecuted, often suffering, and yet persevering in hope. So like I say, this session of the core seminar will be focusing on the sober yet encouraging um, history of Christianity in Russia. So we're going to start with Roman numeral number one on your handouts. It is pre-Christian Russia. So no one knows for certain when Christianity first came to the Slavic people that make up the language block that we know as the Russian people or the Russian-speaking world. So Orthodox Christians in Ukraine claim that the Apostle Andrew brought Christianity to the Ukraine about 50, somewhere around in the middle of 50 AD to 60 AD. Uh, this claim can, has not been verified historically, but that's the claim that they make. They've handed down in their tradition. Um, but what we do know is that 
um, there is little evidence of little evidence of Christian churches in the Russian-speaking world prior to the years 800 to 900 after Christ's death and resurrection. So we, we just can't verify whether or not this is true or not. Nevertheless, this is what the Orthodox Church in that area has handed down. So during this time, the people known as the Eastern Slavs live in modern-day what we know as Western Russia, Ukraine, and uh, Belarus. They, are, they were, at the time, a remarkably primitive people. They didn't have a written language, um, and they practiced a nomadic slash-and-burn type agriculture, very, very different than any, like Europe, Africa, Northern Africa. They were very, very different in the way that they lived. So they settled, their settled and recorded history doesn't start until around 850 AD when the region around modern day Kiev, Ukraine was permanently settled. So and in 18, in, I'm sorry, in 859 AD, 859 AD, there was a book written called The Primary Chronicle and it documents the history of the the first recorded history of this area in the kingdom of Kiev, what we know as modern-day Ukraine, okay? So most view this as the start of the Russian people that we can document as a settled and defined society, but the Euro-Asian span of Russia would remain a wilderness um, of small cities and warring tribes for a long time into history. So if you were to look at a map, you know, when you look at a, a map and you see Russia's a massive land, it's a, it's a huge land mass. So f what this is basically saying is, is that for a really long time, what is known about what we would call modern day Russia is centralized somewhere around Ukraine, Belarus, that area, if you can, if you, are pretty decent with geography, but then most of Eastern Russia is just wilderness. It's tribes and little villages, but no real thought out society. That makes sense to you? All right. And so then there's no known documented churches or Christianity. If it was there, nobody knows about it. Okay. And so then we move on to B, 850, that's the year 850 A.D., Christianity in the kingdom of Kiev. So in the late 900s, or somewhere around 850 to 900, the city of Kiev had become the center of a small, growing Russian kingdom. And <clears throat> sometime around the end of that century, Greek-speaking missionaries from Constantinople made their way into Kiev. They brought with them a, a script. This would have been the first language or first written language that these people had. And um, it was created by Byzantine monks. Byzantine monks. One was named Methodus in Cyril. Cyril created the alphabet that we know today to be 
the Russian alphabet using 24 letters from the Greek alphabet and 19 letters that represent sounds that were unique to the Slavic language, right? So even today, many still use or, or understand this version of the Russian alphabet and they call it Krillic after this missionary. So these men, their motivation to spread the gospel, obviously you need the word of God and you need to know how to read the word of God. And if you go to a people that don't have a written language, well, one of the first things you're gonna have to do is what? Create an alphabet, teach people to read, translate the Bible into their own language. All right, so this was the motivation for these men to do this, and it had a profound impact on the entire society. So when these missionaries with this script came from Kiev, what they found was this pagan people who worshipped various gods of nature, chief among them being a god, the sun god that they call Paran, violence, immorality, and just general ignorance was the norm among these people. And, um, but they found one supposed Christian convert in the person of this queen, Queen Olga. She was the Nordic wife of King Siestoslav. Siestoslav? Yes, that's the way I'm saying it. <laughs> Siestoslav of Kiev. So she was, by all accounts, by his, historical accounts, a ruthless and terrible woman, right? Whatever claim she made to be a Christian, it bore little fruit in her life. And because after the death of her husband, the king, she became the regent for her son, her, and his name was Vladimir. She deceived and murdered and carried out what these people would label as genocide in order to secure the throne for her son. Now, all of this is important, if you just bear with me. Um, as a result, it's not surprising that her professed Christianity had little impact among the people around her or on her son Vladimir, right? He was thoroughly pagan. He offered sacrifices to Russian gods. He mocked his mother's faith. His uh, favorite hobbies were war and immorality, one historical writer says, and he had supposedly had five wives, dozens of concubines, and he seemed like an unlikely person to be the man that would bring Christianity into Russia, right? But soon after Vladimir became king of Kiev, he decided that his people needed a new modern religion to replace the disorganized paganism that reigned over his kingdom. So as history tells us, he had his staff investigate four religions beyond the border of the kingdom of Kiev. And that was Islam, which he rejected because he didn't want to stop drinking. Judaism was out because they lost their land and he was fond of nations and people that had a lot of military victory, so he saw the Jews as weak and therefore he rejected Judaism. Western Christianity seemed dull and too dull and doctrinal for him, so he rejected that. 
but he loved the reports of the flashy and opulent services. <coughs> Excuse me. The flashy and opulent services of the Haggai Sophia Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church in Constantinople. So he decided to be baptized as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And so what happened after that is he goes to Constantinople, he gets baptized, he falls in love, right? It's always, it's always a young lady, guys, it's always a young lady. He falls in love with the Byzantine emperor's daughter, right? Anna, Anna. And it was, so he, he did this purely for political reasons, right? He adopted Christianity. He marries Anna, the Byzantine emperor's daughter, for nothing but political reasons, right? So the Byzantine empire at the time was the richest, most powerful neighbor to this poor, weak kingdom. And now that he has a religion in common with them, he's, he has a Byzantine wife, he, he's in good, the good graces of, the, of this country politically, right? But some, but as sometimes happened, God uses even things that we apparently see as evil and bad motives to do amazingly good things, amen? amen. All right, so upon his return to Kiev with his wife, Vladimir orders the entire population of Kiev to assemble at the river and be baptized. Right? He orders them all to be baptized or be considered an enemy of the state. Right? So this kind of forced allegiance, what it does is utterly destroys the doctrine of Christianity. What true evangelism and true conversion is, it completely destroys it when you force people by the end of a gun to be baptized and claim Christianity. Completely opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. So because salvation is a heartfelt repentance and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, sir? I was just curious, because I know you said that uh, his faith was the Eastern Orthodox Church. Do we consider them brothers? Anybody who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation is a brother. Okay? I, I, I don't want to speak to that. I don't know enough about their particular doctrinal issues to say yes or no on that. Okay, but I will find out the answer to that question. All right. <clears throat> so in one sense, all of the terrible history of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church can be traced back to this error, this fundamental error that Vladimir made to force this entire city to be baptized as Christians. And yet Vladimir himself, he seemed to have been deeply impacted by his new religion, which he had taken on and which he violently foisted on his subjects. So as he continued to grow and learn more about Christianity, something happened to him. That's what historians tell us, something happened. During the first year or two after this incident where he forced the city 
to be baptized, this is what one historian observed. As for Vladimir, his lifestyle was clearly affected. When he married Anna, he put away his former wives and all of his concubines. Not only did he begin to build churches, but he also destroyed idols, abolished the death penalty, protected the poor, established schools, and managed to live in peace with other neighboring nations for the rest of his entire life. And on his deathbed gave all of his remaining personal possessions to the poor of the kingdom of Kiev. So this is a remarkable change for somebody who, from what he was before, prior to his professed conversion, he was brutal, violent, warlike, and grossly immoral. And so he changed. So was Vladimir genuinely converted to Christ? We don't really know. I mean, he clearly his, his lifestyle changed. We can definitely determine that based on history, right? Historians disagree whether or not he was actually a Christian, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about the history of Russia. I'm just giving you some context, right? But all agree that in the years following his profession of the Christian faith, Vladimir of Kiev underwent one of the most remarkable moral reformations in the history of any monarchy, okay? So whatever his sincerity or good intentions were, this first act of this newly, his newly uh, claimed faith, the forced conversion of the whole city set the stage for a terrible future for the Christian church in Russia. So from that day onward, Christianity in Russia was seen as both a civic duty and a way to gain favor with the king and the government. Okay? So, not surprisingly, the church becomes, for many people or many unbelievers, as a way to gain power and influence, not necessarily salvation. Okay? Not necessarily salvation. So, for thousands of years, the union of church and the throne, along with the ranks of unbelievers, brought through infant baptism resulted in a state church in Russia that looks pretty much like the world and seldom looks like what the scriptures say a church should be. That makes sense to you? Okay. And for this reason, the church there in Russia would seldom look to the scriptures for direction or any kind of correction. Right? So, that moves us on to Roman numeral number two, to some reform attempts. So there were some attempts to biblically transform the church in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church. <clears throat> they, uh, they are sporadic, and, um, but because of the union between the church leadership and the power of the state, any serious reform attempts were put down with an incredible level of violence that we have not, we don't see here in the United States, right? So in um, the, actually I'm a little further along here than I'm in Roman numeral, I'm in Roman numeral number two, letter D here. So the 
Somebody help me out with this name. Strill, Strigolniki, Strigolniki, the non-professors <laughs> and the old believers. Okay, so these are groups that um, were tried to do some reforms in, uh, among the Russian Orthodox Church. So the old believers come around around the 18th century. So whenever a church is built on human traditions, whenever a church is built on human traditions, rather than the word of God, any efforts to change those traditions become an attack to the people who are in charge, right? And so because without the gospel, when you have a church that is not founded upon the gospel and it's only founded on human tradition, people begin to put their faith not in Christ but in those traditions. So anytime you go to attack their traditions, they violently protect them. That makes sense to you? All right. So this is what's going on in the Russian church. So when the Russian patriarchy at the time sought to update the practice of the Roman Orthodox Church, a full-blown rebellion ensued in Russia. So those who broke away became known as the old right believers. I mention them in part because many of them left Russia under intense persecution at the time, and many of them settled in the Pacific Northwest in Washington, Oregon area of the United States, the Northwest area of the United States. So if you go to places like in Oregon now, you will find these huge green and white uh, domed churches, and you'll probably see some bearded man speaking Russian and holding to the old ways and the old traditions that they brought with them, even to this day, from Russia, kind of like they would be, I guess you can consider them the Russian version of the Amish. So that you, you, you can find them all over the Northwest directly related to this, this movement, okay? So the summary is, is that whether the old believers in the 1700s or Christians today, vigorous persecution of dissenters and reformers has always been a way of life in the Russian Orthodox Church, except for the efforts of a few noted Monarchs like Catherine the Great, who tried to enforce religious tolerance, or there was 70 years during the reign of the Soviet Communist Empire that the um, church was able to thrive for a while, which we'll get into later. But the pattern for the Russian Orthodox Church has been shocking levels of oppression with anybody who uh, disagree, dissent, or critique its dogma because of its ties with the Russian government, right? So that takes us to Roman numeral number three on your handout, evangelicalism and reformation starting in the 1800s, 1800 to 1905. As a result of this, there was nothing. So we know very much about the Protestant Reformation in Europe. You don't, you don't see this kind of movement in Russia. There's no Protestant there's no Protestant Reformation equivalent in the Russia, right? In the Russian Orthodox Church, I should say. I should say it like that. Um, any reformers who tried to spring up were quickly put in the grave, right? They were put in the grave. And consequently, the story of evangelical Christianity in Russia 
doesn't start in large measure until we get to like the mid-1850s, before you really see Christianity spread in Russia. But as God would have it, when, we fi- when he finally decided to invade Russia with the gospel, it was brilliant master struggle, and we'll get into that. Because three things happened simultaneously to really see the gospel spread across Russia. The first thing is uh, the gospel breaks into Russia from Ukraine, right? So first was the under Catherine II, Catherine II, she wanted to attract Germans to, to move to, okay, so uh, let, me, let me rewind a little bit. Russia was constantly fighting wars at the time. They take over an area near the Black Sea. And so Catherine II wants to attract Germans into this area by the Black Sea. That's modern day, what we know as modern day Ukraine. Okay, so she entices these German tradesmen with land and employment and basically promises of prosperity if they move there. Well, so thousands of Germans come, and they're mainly Mennonites and Lutherans. So when they come, um, and this is around 1815, by, by 1815 there were 58 German villages in the Ukraine. Now, not all of the Germans who came over were Christians, but many of them were. And all of them, the ones that were, what they impressed the, the Russians with their moral lives, their worth et, work ethic, and many believers among them began a movement of daily workplace Bible studies known as the Sunday in German, which just means hour. If I'm saying, if anybody speaks German, please correct me, Okay. So the Russians began to refer to them as the Stundents, right? So their movement began to involve, involve local Russians in the Ukraine, so much so that for the longest time after, evangelical Christians in Russia are still called Stundents, right, even today. So the fruit of their piety and their evangelism was such that by 1858, the first local converts were baptized, Russian converts were baptized in Ukraine. By 1867, there was a church of 35 local Russian converts in the city of Odessa. And by the 1870s, the Russian Orthodox Church began to recognize this group, their influence, and they convinced the city officials to imprison the leaders of the Stundens group for proselytization among the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Russians. And so by 1881, the ranks of the Stundents, they had grown to over 1,000, regardless, even in spite of this persecution, right? So <clears throat> that's the first big movement in Russia for the, uh, the gospel that we can document. The second one is St. Petersburg, so the gospel goes into Russia, beginning in St. Petersburg. So about the same time that the Stundents were growing near the Black Sea in Ukraine, um, there was the gospel was breaking into Russia from the north in St. Petersburg, it, and it came through mainly a British officer named Lord Radstock, Lord Radstock, who was converted 
while he was fighting against the Russians during the Crimea War. So he was, he was in the, in the uh, military. The Lord converts him in the military. He's fighting against the Russians. And as God would have it, he moved on his heart, had pity on these people. And after his military service was over, he goes back to this area as a missionary. And he worked through an organization called the English Evangelical Alliance. And he started to do missionary work in St. Petersburg. And in 1874, he saw a remarkable number of conversions. The most notable um, among Lord Radstock's ministry was the conversion of a man named Visley Pashkoff in 1874. And the reason why this is important was because at the time, this man is known to have been the fifth or sixth wealthiest Russian in the, in the entire nation right so he oversaw several factories and different industries and after his conversion Pashkov began what's known as the society for the propagation of spiritual and moral reading in 1876 this is important because this was the very first evangelical publishing house in Russia and so over the next eight years he spent his own money financing this publishing house and published over 200 books into Russian, including um, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, sermons from Charles Spurgeon, and numerous hymnals. So unfortunately, in his zeal for rapid evangelism, Pashkov, what they, his group, this uh, evangelical, um, English Evangelical Alliance, in Pashkov, what they did was they encouraged churches, the churches that they founded and planted, to avoid taking positions on doctrinal issues like the order of salvation and church government or baptism. They didn't make any distinctions at all. They actually avoided these things. So, so these churches, they held to this form of gospel-only Christianity and became known at some point as the Pashkovites. And they would, in some years later, become a hindrance to those who wanted a more doctrinally sound Russian church. So, um, so despite his wealth and influence, the Russian Orthodox Church saw this man as a threat because he, you know, started this publishing house and people are being converted and they're planting churches. And in 1884, he was expelled from Russia by Tsar the Tsar Alexander III, and he died in Europe late, some years later. Then also we have another big movement that happened in Russia was the Caucasus. Again, around this, all of this is happening at the same time in different parts of Russia for different reasons, okay? So about the same time, there's a group, they're very Baptistic, I should say, um, and they became the spearhead of the gospel's advance in Russia from the south in an area called the Caucasus region near the eastern portion of the Black Sea. So this group was started by an Iranian missionary, an Iranian missionary named Yakov Delikov. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> All right. He's Russian but he's trained in 
to be a Moody Bible Institute, had a school in Iran, trained this man in a campus in Tehran, in Iran. Now, the Iran that we know today is, was very different than prior to the Islamic Revolution in 1978. Some of the older people probably know what I'm talking about. Iran is very different now than what it used to be, okay? So there was a Moody Bible school there, trained this man as a missionary. He began to travel into the caucus, this area called a caucus, preaching the gospel. He would go from train station to train station to train station and just preach the gospel at all these different train stations. And on August 20th, 1867, a local Russian man named Nikita Voronin heard him preach the gospel. He was converted. Then he goes, he's baptized by a German Baptist who was in Georgia at the time on vacation. Then he goes and joins a local church. And so Russian Baptists say that this is the date of the beginning of the Russian Baptist Church. So that's how we got that exact date. Um, then also we have um, Alexander III and Konstantin Paldidonaskev. You don't know if I'm saying it wrong? I think it's right. So the decades that followed saw a steady spread of the gospel and the gospel and gospel preaching into Russia, into the north. They started spreading from the Black Sea north, south, and west, right? And um, the groups that began to meet one another, they just simply called themselves the brethren, the brethren. And so some were Baptists and others were more like undefined just, they were just not, un, they were just undefined evangelicals or Christians or whatnot. So, but as God would have it, the pattern of Russian history continued. And so a decade or so of peace and growth gave way to suffering and persecution. So for about 10 years, the gospel spreading, they're not getting persecuted, nothing terrible is happening. And then this man, Poltides, Pol B. Do. Nastev, Potibo Nastev, okay? <laughs> he convinced the Tsar, Tsar Alexander, to begin a wholesale program to squash any members of these brethren churches, right? So what the Tsar does is he outlaws not just these this group, the brethren, but he also outlaws anybody who's Baptists or anybody who's descendants. If you remember, we just mentioned those a few minutes ago. They were all outlawed in 1882, and any church-owned property was confiscated. The leaders were expelled from Russia entirely. And then a second round of decrees by the same Tsar Alexander in 1894 enabled the government to remove the children of the pastors from their homes, permitted companies to um, employment discrimination, and sent, hired different people to disrupt church services, 
arrested pastors and members and beat them. So thousands of Christians were sent to prison and others were left or sent to Siberia. And some just voluntarily would go to um, parts of Siberia and Central Asia to get away from persecution in Moscow and in this area near uh, Moscow. So as a result, the biblical gospel spread throughout the entire Russian Empire because of the persecution. So the persecution started, what would happen is some obviously would go to prison or be killed, but others would just flee into other parts of Russia. And so as that would happen, they would take the gospel with them. So imagine, for example, we get persecuted here and Jen moves to Montana and she just starts evangelizing. And Lucretia goes to Canada and she starts evangelizing and so on and so forth. That's what happened here. This persecution actually caused the gospel to spread even more throughout Russia, okay? So what you have from 1905 to 1985 is these cycles of freedom and persecution. And in 1905, this wave of persecution that was happening from Tsar Alexander, it just stops because there's a new emperor who comes in, Nicolai II, and he basically undid all of the laws that Tsar Alexander out that he placed. And so overnight, Protestantism went from being illegal to legal, right? And so he issued an edict called On Religious Tolerance, and in 1906, he decreed that groups like Russian Baptists could formally organize alongside the Russian Orthodox Church and could perform civil functions like marriages and funerals, and they could do all of these things on behalf of the government, and the government would recognize them. So that's a big change for these groups. So that's 1905. Then as we move along in history, I'm on Roman numeral number four if you have the handouts. Um, as we move along in history, World War I happens. And so one of the, there's, what's ironic about this is, is that, okay, so anybody know about Russian, the Russian Revolution, World War I and the Russian Revolution? Nobody? You know, good. <laughs> All right. I don't feel alone. <laughs> I, I watch a lot of documentaries. I'm sorry. Um, so the Russian Revolution of 1917 actually brought a golden age of gospel preaching into churches in Russia, right? So nobody actually understands why, like sp specifically why this happened, but what is clear is that the communist government saw that the Russian Orthodox Church had a long history of entanglement with the, with the Tsars. So there was so during the um, Russian Revolution, it was, you know, so Russia had a monarchy, and then the, the, the Russian Revolution comes along. These men are um, communists, so they have a disdain for anything associated with the Tsars and the monarchy and anything like that. But the Russian Orthodox Church has always been in good relationship with the Tsars right, the Russian kings, the Russian monarchy. So when the Russian revolution comes along, 
anybody who was associated with the Russian monarchy, this new communist government didn't want to have anything to do with them, and that happened to be the Russian Orthodox Church. Does that make sense to you? So the, Ru the Russian Orthodox Church was tied in with the monarchy. The Russian or Orthodox Church would always crush any kind of gospel, biblical gospel churches because of their association with the monarchy. The Russian Revolution comes in, kills all the monarchs, kills the monarchy, and now the Russian Orthodox Church is, not, is no longer in the good graces of the Russian government now. That makes sense to you? Okay. So, <clears throat> in some ways, for a while at least, the communists, this new Russian Revolution, this government, they viewed the Protestants as potential allies because they were against the Russian Orthodox Church as well. That makes sense to you? So they gave them some freedom, right? Or at least they didn't see them as an urgent threat. Let's put it that way. They didn't see them as an urgent threat. So the result of that was for, a, for an entire decade, from 1918 to 1928, saw some of the greatest freedoms and fastest growth known in Russian, among the Russian evangelicals and Baptists for 10 years. You look confused. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so for example, from in 1905, the Russian, okay, Russian Baptist churches, it was only 162 Russian Baptist churches documented. But by the time we get to 1927, there's over 4,000 Russian Baptist churches with 400,000 members and over a million weekly attenders, right? And so you had that group was growing, and then you had uh, other evangelical groups had similar freedoms, so that the total number of gospel preaching churches were over a million by the time we get to 1928. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Right, I'm gonna, okay, so <clears throat> I actually don't have any information about the First World War. I, I looked up, I looked that up, and obviously there's a lot of information about the First World War, but nothing that actually, I'm sorry? Oh, she asked about the first, she asked about the First World War, like how it impacted Yeah, so because I mentioned 1917, she automatically asked about the First World War, okay? So I, don't, I couldn't find very much information about how the First World War impacted Christian history in Russia. I assume that it does. I, I just can't. I don't know how. The only thing that I could come across was specifically the Russian Revolution with the Bolsheviks, okay? Um, so... I'm trying not to be so um, academic, but so after the Russian re or the Bolsheviks, you hit, you get Stalin, right? You get Stalin in Russia. That's around what 1932. Um, so 
by the time Stalin comes around, the good times are over, right? That 10 year, uh, those 10 years of peace is over with. Stalin comes in and he begins to shift the Russian government from uh, at least a peaceable dialogue with the Protestant churches toward persecution. And in 1932, he begins his plan to wipe out all religion out of the Soviet Union entirely. So it doesn't matter if they're Eastern Orthodox or anything, he's trying to wipe out all religion, right? So remember by this time, we're up to a, close to a million churches. So 700,000 Christians are documented to have been persecuted or repressed is the Soviet term for public punishment that ranged from, from anything from job loss to imprisonment. So by 1939, just seven years after Stalin comes into power, the only Protestant church that was allowed to legally operate was the Moscow Central Baptist Church. So you went from over 4,000 registered Baptist churches in 1927 to by 1939, there's only one left. Okay? Legally. Legally. Okay? So these were dark days for Russian Christians, but because of God's strange providence, help comes from another unexpected place, Adolf Hitler. So Hitler in World War II actually helps the church in Russia spread. Right, I about fell out of my chair when I read that the first time, but <laughs> let me explain it to you. So when Hitler attacks Russia in 1941, Stalin realizes that Russia needs to be defended and that every Russian needs to help. So I can't persecute Russians and expect them to go fight a war for me, right? That makes sense to you? So at, by this time, there are probably millions of Russians who are claiming to be devout Christians at this time so he promptly ends his plans to exterminate Christianity out of Russia, stops his persecution and focuses his attention on Adolf Hitler and what's going on in Europe in World War II. So both Russian Orthodox and Protestant churches were allowed to resume their organized activities and many were restored to their, and many, much of their former property was restored so he could get back in the good graces of these people because I need your young men to go on this war front for me. So I'm not, he stops his persecution because of what's going on in World War II. So after the war ended, Stalin, he never actually returns to his former wholesale plan to eliminate all Christians, but he did force all the Protestants. And by this time would have been mainly the Baptists and some evangelicals and a few, it was a few Pentecostals at the time in Russia. And um, together he forced them into one union, what's called the Evangelical Christian Baptists. Seems like a strange union, but in 1948, about 2,000 of these congregations were legally allowed to um, register in the Soviet Union and many others chose not to register, and, and they did this in order to keep their doctrine and their, um, 
church is more biblical. Because once you register with the government, they, got, they start to exercise some certain controls over what you could and could not say from the pulpit, right? Pretty sure Romans, worth, Romans 13 was off the table. Or no, actually Romans 13 was probably preached every Sunday. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, um, Nicolai, so, so at this point, we're around like um, 1948, and Stalin dies in 1953. Stalin dies in 1953. A man named Nikita Khrushchev begins to take over or takes over in Russia. He's the new Soviet leader, and he announces a shift in Russia from militant atheism to scientific atheism, okay? So in essence, it's, it was an admission that the old Stalinist policies of active persecution had failed and a new approach to try to destroy Christianity was needed. So many religious prisoners were freed from Soviet, the Soviet gulags and the most heavy-handed repressions like shutting down churches was abandoned but another more subtle scientific method was used. It was the infiltration of churches by the KGB and informants, and they began blackmailing, and even some psychiatric hospital, or they started admitting into psychiatric hospitals some Christian leaders claiming that they had mental disorders for believing some of the things that they believed, right? So this is how the persecution shifted, right? So Khrushchev has famously declared that the last Christians would be, he, he famously declared that in a decade there would be no more Christians in Russia, right? And so after a decade of his rule, um, in by like 1964, he was deposed from power but there were still Russian Christians there, so his plan never came to fruition, right? So that takes us to 1963, and so this Baptist Union that Stalin forced them to partake in, <clears throat> it, it lasts up until the 60s, and during the 60s, the, Soviet, the Soviets banned all children and high school students from attending what they call unscientific church services. So some, of, some in the Baptist Union went along with this new law and this new restriction from Moscow, hoping that one day the, these persecutions would end. But another group of leaders felt like things had gone on too long, and so they split. There was a split that occurred in the Baptist Union, and those churches no longer that were no longer willing to see the, the government impose these beliefs on them, they split. And so then there were many unregistered churches now in Russia. So once that happens, you start to lose count. You really don't know what's going on. Like we can't document how many Christians are there or not. So what we do know is by 1965, around 100,000 Christians had identified with these splinter breakoff illegal groups, and they were severely persecuted by the government. And so um, 
This goes on through the 70s and the 80s, but somehow they managed to endure in the face of this unyielding harassment and persecution. So from the outside, from our perspective, many of us know, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War, so many of us know, you, most people my age, you, don't, you really didn't know what was going on in Russia. There was very little information from the outside, I mean, to the outside, from outside from Russia. So from the outside, it might, it might have seemed like the Russian Christians were being worn down, but in reality, it was the Soviet Union that was coming to the end and almost exhausted, right? We know this from history. So 1985, I'm on Roman numeral number um, six, an old persecutor returns, 1997 to present. I'm sorry, 1985 to 1997 is, um, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, 85 to 97, Mikhail Gorbachev. I, got, I gave you, you need to add another D on Roman numeral number five. Mikhail Gorbachev. So few men seem to grasp this failure better than Mikhail Gorbachev, okay? When he became the leader of the Soviet Communist Party in 1985, Right away, he announces a new policy, and it's the Russian word for reform. And his aim was to modernize the Soviet economy. But he quickly concluded that the whole social life of the Soviet Union had to become um, united with the government, so to speak. And he seemed to hope that the more popular support would protect his economic reforms from the hardliners in the Communist Party. So in 1988, he announced this policy of openness, which brought a flood of new freedoms into the people of Russia. Freedom of conscience is what we would enable it as freedom of conscience, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. Obviously, that's important for us, given us the topic that we're talking about. So, again, out of nowhere, this policy of hostility toward Christianity was abandoned. And in a couple of years, and in the years that followed, it seemed like the government, when it seemed like the government had wiped out Christianity, so then Christians started to evangelize in Russia again, and when they would go, what they would find is churches. They would find all these small, different sects of churches and Christians there, right? And so from 19, I need to jump ahead. I only got five minutes left, right? Three, all right, I'm gonna jump to the end, I'm sorry. The, um, some concluding observations is what we need to get to because I think they're important. The, um, the first observation is this. Christianization is not the way real Christianity spreads, right? So whether the intentions of Vladimir of Kiev back in 19, um, 988 that forced Christianity onto Russia, whether it was real or not, or whether or not his conversion was real, there was thousands of years of bad fruit <coughs> that happened because of his action there, right? So there is no shortcut 
to achieving what God has called his church to do. When we go, we spread the gospel and we make disciples is the orders that our, that our Savior has given to us. That is not easy. It takes time and you can't do it by the end of a gun. Right? You can't force people to be, you can't force your children to love Jesus. You can't force your neighbor to love Jesus. You can't force anybody to do that, right? And so that understanding needs to be something that we need to take into account when we think about this. Number two, God all, God, remove that word almost. That was a typo, a terrible typo, right? It's supposed to say God always preserves a people for himself. God always preserves a people for himself. So regardless of what was going on in Russia, what it looked like on the outside to us, God's people were there, right? The Lord Jesus promised us that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And this is more evidence that the Lord is faithful to his promises, right? Uh, number three, Russian Christianity triumphed in part simply by persevering, right? It's simply by persevering. While there are times when Christians should openly confront the false ideas of people who oppose them, it is often the case that Christ's church triumphs over her enemies just by simply outlasting them. Sometimes that's the case, right? Our Russian brothers and sisters are a great example of this. Number four, opportunities don't usually last long, so we should be ready to take them. So one of the sad lessons of the Baptist churches in particular in Russia is the poor use that many of them seem to have made when they had opportunities to preach the gospel, they didn't take it. When you and I have opportunities with our friends and with our neighbors and with our coworkers to preach the gospel, we should take them. There's no guarantee you're gonna get another one, amen? And then the last thing is encouraging new generation of godly biblical leaders in Russia. So we need to be praying for these people. And even if opportunities in Russia are hard won today, there's still lots of reasons of optimism for the gospel in Russia because God has his people in every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's going to save his church. There are believe there are believers in Russia, and there are God's people in Russia who have yet to hear the gospel. I mean, so we need to be praying for this church. We need to be praying for these people. We need to be praying for those church leaders and praying that they stand fast in the face of persecution, just like we do for other places in other parts of the world. Amen. All right, let's go. I got to stop. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the things that you have taught us today, oh God. We pray, God, that we would take into account the ways that you have been kind to your people, that even you use persecution and evil, God, for our good and for your glory, O oh Lord. We pray for these people in Russia. We pray for your church there, that you would cause them to stand firm, that you would help them, O oh God, to not fall away from the faith, and that you would help your gospel spread. Lord, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear all you have to say to your people today in your service, O oh God. We pray for those who, have, who will be here today that don't know you, Lord, that you would open their eyes and they would hear about our Savior Jesus this day. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.